So hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Green Minds podcast. Hi, Jamie Batho, I'm your host this week and I'm really excited for what we've got lined up for you today. In previous episodes, we've talked um, about some of the technologies that are going to play a role in a more sustainable future. But today I actually get to speak to someone who is building and operating one of these technologies. I'm speaking with Doug Johnson-Punskin, founder and CEO of Circular, a company that uses blockchain and AI to increase transparency and traceability of supply chains. So, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. I've obviously given you a super brief introduction there. So what would maybe be useful is if you spent a couple of minutes introducing yourself um, and telling us about your career. I know you've obviously had a hugely varied career. So tell us that story and how you ended up where you are. Yeah, varied is a very polite way of probably saying unfocused, but that's perhaps <laughs> not. Anyway, I, there is a thread running through it, which I'll, I'll pick up as we go. So um, I, I actually did a degree in civil engineering and then I joined the military. I spent nearly 10 years in, in the Royal Engineers. Um, and, uh, and finish my time sort of clearing mines in places like Bosnia. So obviously the natural career progression from there was to become a management consultant, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> and, um, and having spent a little bit of time as a consultant, which is a great way of sort of you know, immersing yourself in a whole variety of different things um, relatively rapidly, um, I decided I didn't want to be a consultant for the rest of my life and ended up working in a variety of um, different large corporations climbing the slippery pole inside those organizations. And, and I'll just pick on my, my most two most recent roles. One, I ended up running British Telecom's global defense and security business, um, which is where actually I first found out about blockchain from my cryptographers who, this is about 2010, um, they were all getting very excited about this thing called Bitcoin, which in 2010, most of us obviously hadn't heard of. Had I taken it a little bit more seriously, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be running a dive shack somewhere, um, but um, and some of them are. But uh, I, of course, being you know, be, being you know, uh, being who I was, I was going, oh, look, that technology sounds interesting. I wonder when it might have a crossover into the real world, and we'll pick up that as we get into a little bit more of the description of, of the, what the business does. Um, and I also um, ended up at Barclays, where I, um, amongst other things, ran the digital innovation unit. So, you know, the idea of the application of new technologies to enterprise problems, you know, has been a thread running through through my career. So that's kind of how I got to here. And we started this business in 2017. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about, you know, what lessons I can draw from that process. So we'll save that bit for, for, for yeah. a little bit later. But I'm 52. I've got two small kids, which is one of the motivations for trying to create a sustainability technology company, you know, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Uh, you know, the world that they're growing up into is materially less secure than the one that we were born into, even though you're a lot younger than me, Jamie. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know that we have a climate crisis now, whereas perhaps even five years ago, that wasn't something that was mainstream. Uh, and, and if we don't get a grip of it now, it'll be a bit late by the time my kids grow up. So yeah. that's me. Yeah, no, and that, and that, yeah, that that urgency really is. I think in the last five years, it's you're right to say that it's completely flipped on its head, and a lot more people now realize, heck, this is happening. If we don't do anything about it, it is it is my kids that are going to suffer. It's not someone yeah. in the future that I can't point to or see or care about. It's it's very yeah. much real. This is our generation. Yeah, so let's dive into circular then. So, can you tell us about the idea behind the company and really the story of its inception? Yeah, so um, circular was started in 2017, and and the, the starting hypothesis, I mentioned my, my first touch, uh, you know, introduction to, to blockchain, the starting hypothesis was that new technologies can help unlock old problems. That's not controversial. We've 
we all know that. Um, and you know, in the same sort of few last few years, we've obviously come to understand the value of potentially machine learning stroke AI, which you know is a part of it. Um, and also IoT, and actually all of these, of course, are tools in the technology kit bag that can be applied to particular issues. And, and in about sort of 2015, 2016, I started thinking with a few others about, you know, where can we find a problem of scale um, that, you know, with a, with a meaningful impact, where these technologies in combination, perhaps with other things, could start to make a difference, uh, you know, you can imagine as an ex-consultant, we created a two by two grid. So I felt much better about that thinking process. And, um, and we landed on a use case, which is to demonstrate the responsible sourcing of cobalt in lithium ion batteries. Now that sounds quite niche if you're not a battery nerd, but um, lithium ion batteries obviously are essential to the energy transition. Um, you know, lithium ion batteries are what power electric vehicles. They will be what are necessary within energy storage systems. Um, and, um, and one of the ingredients um, in a lithium-ion battery is cobalt. 65% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, associated with you know, horrendous working conditions for artisanal miners, charred labor, um, funding of armed groups, and a whole pile of other stuff that if you were a Tesla owner, you'd be slightly horrified to realize that you are you know, tangentially responsible for. And, and so, you know, car manufacturers have been making efforts to try and understand where the raw materials that they consume, particularly those that have specific responsible sourcing concerns, come from. Now, we all know, for example, you know, palm oil deforestation, same perhaps with beef from the Amazon, similar problem. In this case, I don't want child labor in my cobalt supply chain. And that was, we thought, if we can give a digital identity to, to cobalt at a mine site, and follow it all the way through the, the supply chain through its many stages of transformation, um, then that could be useful. Now, you've got to start a business based on something and you've got to pick a particular use case because otherwise you, you, you're, you're so diffuse that, that it's very hard to, to get any meaningful traction in something that is too diffuse a problem. Um, and if you're going to build a business, you have to start with a, with a coherent problem statement that you believe someone will pay you to solve if you will pay you if you have a solution. That's that's where we started. Now, skipping forward a little bit, we're now sort of four and a half years along this journey. Today, uh, we're working with car brands like Daimler, Volvo, Polestar, Jaguar, Land Rover, BMW, on, you know, and major consumer electronics brands, um, which I can't name, to do battery traceability. So not just cobalt, but actually all the materials and batteries and beyond the chain of custody, where did it come from? Attributing um, embedded carbon to those batteries. Why? Well, battery regulations are coming to Europe, which will require you know, the consumers of um, the, the industrial consumers of batteries to know what the embedded carbon footprint of something is. And the reason it's relevant to the battery is that 70% of the, the carbon footprint of an electric vehicle's manufacture, it comes from the supply chain, and half of that is the battery. Um, so, you know, the reason we're transitioning, obviously, from um, you know, traditional internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles is because we reduce tailpipe emissions. Um, and so, you know, there's less CO2 generated by us as consumers driving around. But what, that, what has happened is that the responsibility for the reduction of the carbon footprint has shifted to the manufacturing phase of that vehicle. About 30% of the emissions come from the, the car factories themselves, the manufacturing plants where the car is made. 
and 70% is inherited from the supply chain. And, and if you think about it, you don't need to be you know, into geology or metallurgy or anything else to, to realize this. We're taking rock, which is the, the basis of steel and aluminium and battery raw materials, all of which are metals except graphite, um, which is also mined, of course. Um, and, and we're turning rock into things that roll. And that clearly requires a vast amount of investment of energy to do. And if that energy comes from coal-fired you know, power stations, you've got a problem. Yeah. So that's the essence of what we do today. Now, other customers in other fields, we're working with Total on the chemical recycling of plastic waste, working with upstream miners like BHP and, and Finnish Minerals Group to you know, attach ESG data to 200 ton parcels of nickel at, at the source in order that you know, customers with a desire for more sustainably produced raw material can, can find a way to source it and believe those claims. And, and then, of course, a whole host of participants in the midstream of these supply chains. Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a, it's a great thesis to set up a, com- a company on. And, and I'm fascinated by really the kind of hidden side of the energy transition, right? You described it really well where you, yeah, you get rid of all the emissions at the tailpipe, but you've suddenly got issues with eff- efficacy and emissions and environmental no, problems in your supply chain. It's inherited chain. scope three. Yeah. Um, I mean, just nerd out on that for a second. And the World Economic Forum published a report at the start of this year called the Supply Chain Opportunity. And it highlighted eight complex global supply chains that between them account for 50% of all global carbon emissions. You know, telling you and I to eat more beetroot burgers isn't really going to make much of a difference if we're still using coal-fired electricity to make steel, you know, and, and this... Much of the discussion of, of sustainability is pretty superficial. You know, wind farms are good. Yep, they are. But if you make them with steel that's come from coal-fired you know, smelters, then you've got to run your wind farm for 10 years merely to repay the carbon cost of creating in the first place. Yeah. Same kind of thing you know, applies to cement. Obviously, cement very heavily used in construction alongside steel. You, know, you can't... You can't make cement without taking limestone and heating it to 2000 degrees and you're driving off CO2. So not only is there a lot of energy, but if that CO2 is not captured at the cement plants, it goes straight into the environment. So, you know, these are the sort of things most of us don't, you know, don't perhaps realize. And the same with electric vehicles. You know, Boris tells us we've all got to have an electric vehicle by 2030. Okay. Ignoring a few little modest practical considerations like where are we going to charge them all and is the energy grid capable of serving that much electricity to all these cars and you know, how do you make them affordable because particularly the battery is very expensive so little trivia like that. You've then got the issue that if we all bought electric vehicles by 2030 we would materially damage the planet more if we can't make the cars more sustainably. So I, I was I, when you were talking about which car manufacturers you're working with, and I'll, I'll ask this question before we dive into actually how the technology works. But you said, well, why? And it's because there's regulation coming in place. So how much of what you're seeing in terms of engagement from these big companies is just because there's regulation on the horizon and how much of it is because they want to do good and there's a kind yeah. of, there's a sense it's their responsibility. So there are a number of, this is a really good question. There are a number of factors at play. Now, regulators signal intent. Regulation takes like forever to come into play. Um, but what it does say is in future, there are going to be plastic taxes or in future, we're going to you know, tax carbon or whatever. And, and of course, that signals to businesses, right, we need to get our, our brains in gear. Other things then drive, uh, drive that process. So some brands are actively trying to use improved and demonstrably improved sustainability as a driver of their top line sales growth. 
An example is Volvo. Polestar has declared that it's going to try and create the first net zero car by 2030. Um, we're working with Polestar on that. It's beyond audacious. I mean, I know that sounds like an awfully long way away, but decarbonizing a complex industrial supply chain to genuinely have a net zero car is a moonshot target in a really good way. Um, and they're leading the way in that regard. But of course, they're a challenger. So, so you've got some brands trying to differentiate on sustainability and, and doing business responsibly. And if you look at a Volvo car advert now, it's the same kid in the back of the car. They've always been synonymous with safety. It's the same child in the back, but now they're driving past windmills. And of course, the voiceover is, you know, the safety of your children is not just about inside the metal box. It's about the world they grow up into, which is a really powerful marketing message to try and get that point across about sustainability. The fastest driver of change, though, isn't regulation or consumer pressure, because there's no way that any of us will ever really understand what the embedded carbon in the battery supply chain is for car manufacturer. It's not that we're stupid, but how the hell would we get that information? The real driver of change is actually the finance, financial industry. So you have large institutional investors like Larry Fink, who's the chief executive of BlackRock, you know, voting against the boards of big polluting companies because basically he's he's calling out the fact they're not doing enough fast enough. And that is that makes this a boardroom issue. And then you have big lenders, you know, big corporations need to borrow large amounts of money to fund their working capital needs. Big lenders increasingly looking for evidence of ESG, environmental, social and governance performance, not just a glossy brochure. Mark Carney was on stage at COP26 a couple of weeks ago talking, you know, nice headline, you know, we, the financial industry, need to starve the most polluting industries of cash. To give you an example of that, and this is kind of an obvious one, if you and I, Jamie, were trying to create a coal mine now, um, you know, the pool of capital that we might be able to access is clearly shrinking. And the cost of that capital is likely to be much higher than it would otherwise have been. Now, you know, it is only a matter of time before that moves into other polluting industries like electronics and automotive and aerospace and textiles and FMCG and construction, where, you know, a big lending bank like Deutsche Bank, for example, you know, agreeing a new $300 million facility with someone will insist on, you know, specific evidence to support claims that they're starting to make a difference. Today, it will be starting to make a difference. And in five years' time, it'll be the metrics to prove you've made a difference. Yep. And, and carbon offsets aren't good enough. You know, and it, I mean, I think it's now broadly accepted that that's a bit of a fudge. Yep. Um, you know, I'm sure there are some really good carbon offsetting projects, but I'm sure there's a whole pile of rubbish. And, yep. um, and, and so actually, people, you know, the fundamental challenge is not offsetting, it's abatement. Yep. Yeah, and, and and offsetting is now kind of um, what we're getting drummed into us on the course is that it's really a last resort and it's, it isn't your strategy, it's your fallback. If it's fine fulfilling a little gap yeah. uh, as long as it's a sensible offset. I mean, if you and I can plant you know, 100,000 acres of tree saplings in Western Australia, and guess what? That's not going to offset anything ever because it'll all be dead. Yeah, yeah exactly. I am I'm, I'm, uh, reassured to hear that your opinion is that the finance sector is the real kind of impetus for change because a lot of what we hear is that there's a funding gap here there's all this money committed to kind of net zero but why is there still a funding gap so it's, it's kind of reassuring to hear that um from the inside you feel that well, a lot of the discussion of the funding gap is um it is about governments funding you know smaller nations to make changes move away from coal etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and 
there's definitely a funding gap there. The pledges are slow to come in and the money even slower to flow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you think about running, if we imagine for a second, we're running a very large construction company and we want to finance a project. It's very easy for a bank to say, okay, so you want $250 million, um, you know, show me this, that, and the other, or as a condition of the facility we will provide you with, obviously there will always be financial covenants that they're, they're normal, um, but actually, you know, now we'll attach ESG covenants and this is starting to happen. We had a French construction company in here. I'm sitting in Hammersmith in London, uh, in our office. We, we had a French construction company in here a couple of weeks ago who were talking to us about a large solar project that they want to do. Um, and their bankers have, have said, we will only fund this project if you can demonstrate there's no Uyghur slave labor in your solar, solar panel supply chain. Because obviously a large proportion of the silica used in solar panels comes from China and most of the world's solar panels are made in China. Um, and, and that's the first time someone's come to us and said, look, I, I'm, I have a financing challenge that you could help solve. You know, and, and actually 20, 30 basis points on the cost of finance for a large corporation is material. If you're in the construction sector, your margins are wafer thin um, and you can't afford for your money to cost you more. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably then a good segue into circular, how actually circular works and what the technology does. So how, how do you track supply chains and material? Especially, I'm actually especially interested in when they transform and when they change composition, how you keep tabs on it all and yeah, how it all works basically. You've obviously done your research. That's a great question. Um, so uh, we are creating a digital twin for a commodity at its source, and then a digital thread that follows that commodity from source to its industrial consumption. So at the moment when you know it is for the brand to inform the consumer, we're helping the brand drive towards, for example, a net zero target. Now, the challenge is that um, I mentioned earlier, rocks turn into things that roll. Um, the challenge is those many steps of transformation. So tracking a, a diamond, for example, is relatively straightforward. It's a diamond at a mine site, and it's still a diamond at the other end of the supply chain when it gets onto a piece of jewellery, albeit that it's been cut and polished. But the physical properties of that diamond haven't changed, although it has been cut and polished. And so it's much easier to track and trace that through multiple hands through a supply chain. It's been, those sort of things have been around under the Kimberley process for, you know, we've all seen the film Blood Diamond. Um, you know, that, that's been around for a while. The challenge with battery materials, for example, is that they start off as rock, which could be a 30 kilo sack in an artisanal mine site in the Congo. And then it goes to a smelter. And from there, it goes to coarse and fine chemical refining. And then it's amalgamated with other materials. And then those materials, you know, um, are used in the manufacture of, in this case, a cathode, which is one half of a battery, which ends up in a car. And so I'm going to talk about how to make sure you know, you don't get the crap in, crap out problem that all technologies exist with in a second. But let's just talk about the transformation bit first. So at every one of those steps, the input ingredients to a, an industrial process are completely different from the output product. So often when I'm describing this, I use the analogy of a cake recipe. You know, so much flour, so many eggs, so much sugar goes, put, gets put through a defined mixing process called a recipe. You need a mixer to do that. Um, and then you stick in a cake tin, it goes in the oven for an hour. And at the end of it, you get one cake. Well, firstly, if you end up with 20 cakes, you clearly added additional ingredients. 
and if and it's only a TV chef that manages to make a cake in three minutes, um, you know, here's one I made earlier. And, and if that elapsed time is too short, then clearly that cake was not made from that flour, even though they're obviously very different things. So imagine that analogy of a cake recipe applied to you know, rock being crushed that goes into a smelter and then gets turned into, you know, in this case, cobalt hydroxide, for example, that then goes off shipped to China to be, you know, is an ingredient into a process that eventually becomes precursor and is sintered together with lithium and blah, 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 blah. You get the idea. Every one of those is basically a cake recipe. Um, and then you end up at the end of that long process with, you know, a number of bags, you know, one ton bags of, of black powder, and that black powder is co coated on copper film, and that's your cathode. And your cathode alongside your anode is wrapped into, you know, sandwiches or parcels or however they choose to, to, to do it and ends up in a battery bomb and ends up in your car. Um, that's a physical process. And, and in the industrialized world, almost every one of those participants has quality management or production management systems that connect goods in to goods out. They have to do it because they're operating to different chemistry requirements from their downstream customers, and they have to do it for quality control purposes. You have to know what to withdraw from your process if it hasn't worked. So we're taking a subset of that data and stitching it together with all of the other participants to create a chain of custody. So let's talk about the first step. All that's fascinating, but pointless if you can't be confident that the first record of that material is accurate. So I'm gonna take the hardest use case. I'm gonna stick with cobalt because that's what I was talking about earlier. I'm gonna take the hardest use case. And imagine now for a second, we're all standing in a muddy puddle in a managed artisanal mine site in the Congo. And that by managed artisanal, I mean artisanal mining is people with shovels. Um, and a managed artisanal site is one um, that has, you know, is, is fenced. You've got known workers within it. Um, people are, you know, wearing basic levels of protective equipment. Um, the overburden has been removed, which means people aren't digging down deep shafts or along horizontal tunnels. So you've created a safer working environment. All tick. Bear in mind that, you know, digging for rock is a subsistence form of living in, in, the, in places like the Congo. So it's a legitimate job as long as you're not putting people's lives at risk every day doing it. Obviously, no kids on site. So, you know, material that's dug up in one of these, in one of these sites um, is brought to a collection point. So a pit manager, a registered employee within that site is bringing material to a collection point. The first thing we do is, is register identity so that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in it was, that it was Jamie that brought the material to me. What I'm interested in is that you are actually an employee, not some random who's bringing stuff to a collection point that I might be paying. My identity is the person using the mobile device to, to first record this is also recorded. We use facial recognition for both of those. So we know who is involved. We know obviously the location and um, we've had to build a whole variety of defense against GPS spoofing. And we also have a timestamp. All those things come from the handheld device. We're using ruggedized Android phones for this, by the way. Um, so the, the next step is what is this material and how much does it weigh? Well, miners are paid for the quality and weight of the material that they dig up. Um, you want to pay people for good dirt, not any old dirt. And so handheld mass spectrometers are routinely used at these mine sites. So we know what the material is and its water content and, and its weight. Um, and then we can assign a tag to it. Now, if you're talking about a 30 kilo sack, it'll be a, a Tyvek or nylon tag with a QR code printed on it. That QR code is meaningless until you attach all that other data that I've just told you about to that tag. Until then, it's just a piece of plastic. 
Now, we use a system of color coding, which means that this week we're using the yellow ones and next week there'll be the red ones. And those tags have been issued to this particular mine site, which means that if they're not used by me in this mine site this week, it's an, an anomaly, which means there's no black market for tags. Um, because even if you could get access to the system, if you've got the wrong tags in the wrong place, then Clearly, something didn't work. Yeah. So um, that combination of data points is materially better than the current bag and tag schemes, which are paper-based, which are open to abuse and tags can be bought and sold in the local market for 50 cents and you can attach them to something and suddenly your stuff's legitimate, even if it is not. Um, so that is a... Uh, that's a, that's a particular use case. We're doing this right now at, at mine sites in the Congo for, for the likes of Trafigura, the world's largest metals and commodity trader. Um, and uh, at the other end of the scale, you've got you know, 200 ton parcels of nickel leaving BHP mine sites in Western Australia. Clearly, I'm not so interested in the identity actors involved because we, we don't have concern of child labor or anything else, but or illegal mining. And of course, they have mine management systems or ERP systems on site, which will allow me to identify where this blob of nickel sulfate came from and, and attach an identity to it. Now I'm tracking you know, 200 tons worth of stuff and attaching ESG data to it yep. as opposed to individual little bags. But you know, they're basically the same principle. Now, you know, in the case of BHP, there's a process of trusting the provider, in this case, one of the world's largest, in fact, the world's largest mining company. And in the case of the artisanal miner, that trust in the underlying data comes from those, those checks that say, I know who you are, I know where we are, I know that you know where it's come from, and I know exactly what it is, etc. And then you have we have track and trace apps that actually go into the vehicles that take material from a mine site to us to a buying center and then onto a smelter so that we can investigate unauthorized stops um you know so so there's a there's a pretty rigorous process to making sure that people aren't breaking the rules yeah got you so that is yeah so it's a, it's a fascinating process both from a technological standpoint and a kind of coordination standpoint so what is the harder bit is it the tech is it actually using the technology or is it making sure that all these actors are on the same page, they all know their steps, their responsibilities, and it all is kind of adhered to. We worked very, we did our first field trials in Rwanda in 20, 2018. We worked really hard to create the simplest possible user experience. Um, there's a phrase in Africa, this is Africa, which basically means that if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And even if it's the most, if it's the most unlikely way to go wrong, it'll definitely go wrong that way. Um, and so we worked really, really hard to make the process very, very simple. Um, and uh, But nevertheless, use technology in the background. This is where things like machine learning come in to, to, to identify anomalies. We have people on the ground who, who are there to, to course correct and make sure that things are done properly. The process of registering miners or users of apps, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if they move too far from where they're supposed to be working, they're automatically logged out. So they can't log in and give the device to somebody else. There's all sorts of things that we've you know, had to build to be confident that this is a reliable way of doing business. And of course, you don't necessarily get a reliable mobile signal where we start as a cloud-based platform and we've created a version of this that, that works on site essentially an on-premise on mine site in the middle of nowhere yeah. approach where there's essentially a, a local network created off a server and the minimum amount of data is transmitted into the cloud and back to the buying center so that they can identify this stuff as legitimate before the lorry gets there. Um, but you've nevertheless got all of those steps. And of course that data is taken off in, in slower time on, you know, in, in onto a piece of hardware rather than just floating up into the cloud because yeah. you know data is, is not reliably transmitted all the time. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it does sound like a pretty comprehensive process, but what really then are the limitations of it? How far can you go with this to, to improve the sustainability of supply chains? So uh, the, the first thing to say is the supply chain isn't linear. So these are networks and networks. It's a bit like a spider's web. Um, and so, you know, many producers and many participants at each tier of the supply chain doing different things. And the fundamental challenge is that if you're, if you're the downstream car manufacturer, material may flow right the way through these different participants over time. And each of those participants will have a different scope one and two emissions um, profile. There'll be different distances between these locations, and some will be using some renewable energy, and some will use you know, coal-fired electricity. So what that means is that the downstream, you know, in in a given month, the same battery for the same vehicle could could you know they could be coming from a whole variety of different paths through the supply chain, even if they all came from a single battery manufacturer. One of the things we did in Diner at the start of last year is we showed them how this how we did this in part of their battery supply chain and showed them that literally month on month, they could be four times as many emissions embedded within the same battery for the same car model than there are in the next month. And uh, the challenge then is, you know, what do you do about it? Because clearly if I can get, if I can get them at 25% the emissions, how do I use buying smarter as the tool to help me reduce my embedded carbon before I spend billions on R&D to re-engineer different materials and turn cactus juice into leather and all the other things I might do. Um, you know, how do I just buy smarter? Um, and that's really what we're doing. You can't manage something you can't measure and monitor. So yes. we are providing the ability to measure and monitor, which then allows the car manufacturer to engage with their tier one supplier and from through them to the wider supply chain to make choices about which participants in the supply chain need to be, need to be involved or need to be removed. Um, it quite quite simply, you know, that market pressure will start to make or create a pressure in the midstream, most of which is in China, to be more sustainable. Um, and and you know, we're seeing some early early movement in that. But what we just talked about in terms of batteries is just as relevant to green steel, green cement. Batteries, of course, are in consumer electronics as well. So you know, the, the electronics industry faces exactly the same challenges. Eventually, this this coordinated effort to get more sustainable raw materials will start to drive change as will what we talked about earlier finance yeah yeah got you <clears throat> so then i'm interested in how you then attach an emission uh, kind of em uh, emissions from a to b are you kind of going through kind of ca carbonist accounting practices and saying i know it's gone from here to here by this method i have an emissions factor for that how does that all work yeah so um obviously there are um, there are loads of different methods for trying to, uh, you know, calculate emissions. Um, and at the moment, there isn't a single global standard or accepted single standard for how to do it. Now, the Rocky Mountain Institute in the US is, is working on trying to create a definitive standard for carbon accounting in supply chains. Um, and, and they might get there. And, and if they do, then maybe we'll all standardize on something. But at the moment, we, we're all standardized on nothing, which creates some complexity. So we have a whole variety of different methods depending on what the end customer says right well we're going to pick this method and that's what we'd like to apply to everybody um, which is which is currently the only sensible way of gaining some consistency now what most folks are doing today is life cycle assessments and i'm sure you've all spent time thinking about how they work now as you know life cycle assessments are 
based on a snapshot in time, a lot of benchmark data, some of it quite aged, some of it's a bit generic about whole industries. And, and it might give you a snapshot of what the, you know, the carbon footprint would be of a particular product. But what it doesn't do is give you a tool with which to work out which tier four supplier to exclude from your supply chain. Um, and so that's why a more dynamic approach is necessary. So yeah. if you can follow these digital threads and you know which actor at which point in time worked on you know, a certain volume of material, then you can attribute a slice of their scope one and two emissions to that particular blob of material at any point in the supply chain and aggregate it up so that you, you're basically starting to see what everybody's contributions are through this complex network of actors. And that's what we're doing. So we're taking the flow of materials and we're attaching ESG data to it. Now, I know I've been talking about carbon, but it could be water use, water reuse, you know, um, worker pay. It could be all sorts of things, safety, you know, indigenous rights in Australia, you know, whatever it happens to be. I mean, ESG is a pretty broad field. But, you know, we've, we've pioneered the ability to attach ESG metrics to parcels of material. Yeah. Now what we're working on is, and we actually partnered with SGS, which is one of the world's largest testing and verification companies, certification companies, others would be Bureau Veritas, UL, et cetera, um, in order to, to certify those that data. So if I'm telling you that this is carbon neutral nickel sulfate, then someone comes and measures to make sure it really is. And then we can attach that claim to this parcel of material. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's a really, really fascinating business and I'm much clearer now on how it works. So thank you for that. But one thing before I move on to talking about asking you about um, running a startup and how that process has been, one thing that has just occurred to me throughout this conversation is that this is all about data and there is a massive amount of data that this whole process creates and we know that kind of the blockchain is a very intensive use of energy so how much are you guys internalizing what you're doing and thinking about your own impact yeah. so um public permissionless blockchains such as those underpinning for example some of the cryptocurrencies like bitcoin are very energy intensive and that's because the method by which they decide on the um the veracity of a claimed transaction and the order in which they should be written to the blockchain um, called the consensus me mechanism um, in the case of Bitcoin relies on solving mathematical puzzles, which obviously is very compute heavy. And that's where the energy consumption comes from. Now, our platform uses something called Hyperledger Fabric. Um, the Hyperledger project is a, is a spin out of, of the Linux Foundation. It's an open source private permissioned ledger originally written by you know, IBM, Dell, and a variety of others, and now contributed to by a large open source community, us included. And um, you could run it with the battery power of a laptop because it doesn't, it uses different consensus mechanisms to decide in which order things are written to the blockchain. The reason why you can do that with a pr private permissioned ledger is unlike a complete stranger wanting to join in and write transactions and you have no idea whether they're telling the truth or not. In this case, there's a minimum hurdle of, I need to know who you are, I need to know where you are, I need to cut your company's details, you need to have a track record of behaving yourself, blah, 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 whatever those entry criteria are, which means you're dealing with known actors, which already creates a minimum level of trust, which is not the same as someone who's completely anonymous contributing data to the network. So the energy use of, of the blockchain is, is small. The limitations of blockchain though, in, in this case, aren't about 
energy use. They're actually about the efficacy of a distributed ledger as a means of storing large amounts of data. So what I've just taught you about it generates, I mean, we're getting millions of scan points a day um, through the supply chain. There's a massive amount of data, including photographs and all sorts of stuff, um, come flowing in all the time from, from these supply chains. Uh, we put that data into databases and hash um, blobs of that data to the blockchain. So yep. what's being stored in the blockchain is, is hashes. Yep. Why? Well, what I'm interested in is notarizing transactions, which means that I know what happened when, and you can't rewrite history if it subsequently proves to be inconvenient. Um, now, obviously, errors happen, and those errors can be corrected, but then you have a clear audit trail of what was originally said and how, what it was changed to and why. Um, and so, you know, the distributed ledger serves that purpose of, of immutability and notarization without being the primary source of data. And all the business intelligence and, and the rules that dictate how this recipe should work and whether or not that's actually what happened, all that's done within Oracle databases. We also use graph databases to enable better you know, visualization of relationships between different participants in the, in the supply chain. Um, and then machine learning is used on, on that pool of data to look for those sorts of anomalies where things are happening that don't look right. Yeah. Um, and you augment that self-reported data on which you've been running these, these algorithms with third-party data like audit reports or certifiers certificates or whatever else happens to be. We've also you experimented with the use of machine vision on aerial imagery to compare claimed production of mine sites with level of activity to say, you know, um, and this doesn't seem credible. This volume of stuff that's coming out of here does not seem credible given how little is going on on this mine site. So there's many ways of, you know, providing some third party validation of self-reported data. And how, what happens then when, when an anomaly is identified, are you just giving the data to the company and saying, here's an anomaly, go figure, or how involved in that process are you? Um, more and more, because because of the amount of data that we're generating. And I mean, I, I look now at the dashboards on our platform, and I don't see them as often as our guys who are working on them every single day. And, and it takes a while to work out what on earth is going on. And I've been on this journey since the very start. Um, and increasingly, we're providing this as a managed service to customers. Essentially, you know, there is something that you might want to worry about. This is what we suggest you do about it, because yeah. that's useful and actionable, as opposed to go, go, you know, go figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm glad that is the the way things are moving because yeah, it makes more. Well, sense. We're trying to drive change, you yeah. know, and that, and that means you you have to equip people with enough information with which to to do something, anything. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. So I now do want to ask you then about founding your own company and how that process has been, because you, I guess you went from big corporations to a startup. So how did that, how did you find that? And how has the journey been? Obviously, everybody knows startups are roller coasters, but I'd like to hear about yours. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, depending on the, the, the book you read, you know, sometimes it can be a bit of a shit show, pardon my French. Um, <laughs> you know, my founding team and I are all a little bit older. I'm, I'm 52. Um, and, and, all of my leadership team are you know, reason, very experienced. We're all of a similar ilk. And there is an advantage to that because actually you've got a fair amount of experience and you realize the importance of creating an environment for your people, which, which is not a shit show. Um, and uh, we, we're now about 70 people now across five different principal offices, although we have a lot of remote workers, including some of our software developers. And... Um, so let's just rewind to the beginning. Obviously, starting a business means you, you've got to take a punt on an idea. When I was first pitching what we were doing to, 
investors in 2018, I was met with sort of a general glazing of the eyes. And everybody went, does anybody really care about this? Um, I, I felt, I, I don't know if you've heard of Casper mattresses, you know, the first of the mail order mattresses. No, I've not, no. You know, obviously mail order mattresses are now a thing. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I, I think it was Casper that was first in New York. And you can imagine the founder of Casper, and this is an analogy for how I felt. The founder of Casper goes to see a venture capitalist and says, I'm going to disrupt the mattress market. You can imagine the person on the other end of the table going, really? Why? <laughs> and, then, and then you're going to say, I'm going to do mail order mattresses. And the guy's thinking, that's not how anybody buys mattresses. You want to go and lie on it and go, oh, this one's nice and squishy. Um, and, and, and to which your response is, oh, that's okay. We're going to give people a 100-day free trial, and then they can return it at no cost. Like, you're an idiot. That business model is never going to work. And that was exactly how I felt in the early days of this business. Now, of course, today we're having this conversation, and we've had this conversation at COP26, and everybody goes, yeah, this actually, we've got to get down and dirty into the difficult stuff because we tried all the trivial stuff and it didn't make any difference, you know. And, and so um, actually understanding where stuff comes from and what we're inheriting from the supply chain is, is, is increasingly accepted as something that just is a necessary thing. The, the digitization of supply chains is in its infancy. We've digitized business processes inside corporations and between tier one suppliers and manufacturers and blah, 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 logistics last mile, blah, all digitized to death. Yet beyond tier one or two of a supply chain, it's foggy at best. Um, and, and, and if you think about the amount of working capital tied up in here and supply chain fraud, which is as old as mankind, we've been adulterating flour with ground stones since we lived in caves. The reality is that there's an awful lot of opportunity here to you know, achieve supply chain resilience, to manage risk within those supply chains, to, you know, in this case, do traceability and try and tackle the sustainability challenges. There's a huge opportunity to do something here. But when we started, no one saw it. Yeah. So I self-funded the business um, until last summer which is kind of painful, I mean, very painful. Um, and I'm not sure I'd do it again that way um, if I had the chance. Um, obviously, this is where the benefit of a bit of a you know, reasonably successful corporate career comes in. You can actually afford to do that. Clearly, I couldn't have done that in my 20s. Um, and, uh, and we were just profitable at the point that we took our first external investment, which actually came from some of our own customers. So Volvo, Jaguar Land Rover, BHP, Total, Boeing, um, all invested in us. Uh, and that's obviously a very helpful signal that what you're doing is something they consider to be useful. And suddenly the financial VCs go, oh, maybe it is a thing. Um, and then we did another funding round and, and, and we've, you know, we've raised about $20 million in the last 12 months. We're going to be doing another funding round soon. Um, and you know, that takes the financial pressure off, but obviously yeah. then you replace that with a different pressure to perform. Now, as it happens, almost all of our customer you know, work is coming inbound. People picking up the phone to us saying, we need, you know, we need this. We, we're doing a solar panel project, as I talked about earlier. So clearly that's not going to last forever. And we're going to have to go out and do more outbound selling. And we're yep. obviously starting to do that. We're doing quite a lot of trade shows and exhibitions and conferences in a way of trying to build our brand. You know, we are today the leader in batteries um, globally in terms of traceability and carbon accounting. Clearly, there are going to be a lot of batteries around as we drive on the energy transition. Um, that's a good start. But we've been experimenting with other things. So we've been doing... I mentioned the chemical recycling of plastic waste with Total because chemical recycling of plastic is going to need to grow, even though the economics of waste plastic haven't yet been properly worked out. Plastic taxes may help. They're currently too low. Some people just 
swallow them, which is hardly the point. Yeah. Doing another project with Sky on ocean-bound plastics going back into um, consumer uh, consumer electronics, primarily things like remote controls. And you know, separately, Jagger and Andrew have just announced a project we did on leather traceability. Leather, of course, is a byproduct of beef. Beef concerns of deforestation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you know, obviously, the people say, "Well, don't use leather." Well, until we stop eating beef, you know, there's going to be a lot of leather. And at the moment, there's some leather going into landfill, which is even yeah. more crazy. Um, you know, so. Um, Traceability of leather is important, but there are a whole host of materials that have either responsible sourcing concerns or are particularly polluting. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of places we can go from where we are today, even if our current sort of core pillar is this battery thing. Yeah, got you. And hence the need to raise funds and to expand into all these industries. But I would want to ask you about how you found that transition from having no investors to suddenly having a bunch of investors that have their own opinion about the business and aren't asking questions and how that transition, how you found that transition? Well, firstly, scrutiny is good. Um, yeah. I, I invited two people that I knew, senior people, to be non-executive directors on our board long before we had external investment because it's super easy to drink your own Kool-Aid. Yeah. And so actually, even if it's only quarterly, having a couple of greybeards, um, for want of a better way of describing them, you know, elder statesman type people to ask you some difficult questions and hold a mirror up to yourself and say, really, you know, is actually very, very valuable long before we had any investors. Um, now, obviously, our first investors were our own customers, and, and they were already clearly bought in, not only enough to use us, but also to want to invest in us. And so, you know, it's the, the, the process of scrutiny had been their own due diligence about deciding they wanted to work with us and then seeing it actually start to come to life. Yeah. Um, so that was easier. And the financial VCs do pretty comprehensive due diligence, including talking to your customers, so that they are supportive of what you're trying to do and the approach that you're taking and the quality of the management team, et cetera, et cetera. And they are also pretty clear on, on your current state of maturity. Um, and so, you know, the challenge then becomes um, delivering on the milestones that you have set in your plan uh, and uh, which was the basis for their investment. Yeah. So obviously the early stages of a, of a high growth company are not as predictable as a massive PLC that's got, you know, fairly steady juggernaut rolling down the road um, and even they have shocks um, so there are ups and downs but our investors I found to be not only very helpful in in um, making introductions to other customers etc but also um, very supportive uh, you know really um, really uh, pragmatic about the ups and downs and you know the, the the wiggles in the path that you have to make and the pragmatic choices you have to make we we had a board meeting last week you know, it went really really well because they are they genuinely see that we are doing the best we can in a growing market that everybody now recognizes that we're well positioned in it and that you know we're, we're industrializing how our business works so that we can consume capital efficiently in order to drive growth and that's the key you know once you once you get to series b you have to be able to demonstrate how pouring in cash at the top of a funnel leads immediately to not immediately but leads directly to the growth of the business primarily yeah. annual recurring revenue which is what's most relevant to a software as a service business yeah you need that stickiness so and i'm glad that the the relationship with investors is 
as good as it sounds, I think that's probably testament to you and your team for, for doing a good job. Um, so I would last question on circular then before we wrap things up is what you've kind of mapped out what this technology and what this approach could be applied to, but what does the next 12 months really look like for, for circular? What are you focusing on? Um, we've got three sort of three big priorities. Um, we're in the process of entering the US market with Biden's infrastructure bill and a, a you know, the democratic interest in sustainability um, and, and a cross-partisan interest in resource security, essentially an over-reliance on Chinese supply chains. Um, the conditions are right for us to try and grow in the US. We have three US customers now. Boeing is the only one I can name, but the others are also very big. Um, and that's a good start, but there's a there's a world of opportunity there. And, and US industry is, is rapidly learning from what Europe has done under the Green Deal and working out how it applies in the US. So that's mm -hmm. definitely one. And I talked just now about the challenge of industrialization. You know, you inevitably with rapid growth come growing pains. Happens to humans, happens to startups. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, as you move from startup to scale up, you, you need, as much as I hate process, you need a bit more process. You need a bit more structure. You need to provide a solid foundation so that your people know how stuff is supposed to happen. And... As you add more people, they can join the company and become effective as rapidly as possible. And all of that needs, you know, I, I sort of characterize as industrialization. Yeah, got you. Um, well, thank you for that review. Yeah, it was really, really interesting to hear more about the company. I want now to move to finish off with two kind of more personal questions. The first being, is there a book that you have read um, that you found particularly kind of insightful or inspiring, either with regards to your work or kind of just the sustainability and environmental field in general? Yeah, so um, I'm I, I'm going to cheat and plug two. For one of them is about the process of starting a business um, and and growing it. There's a chap called Ben Horowitz who's one half of and Andres and Hor Horowitz, and and those two work together in LoudCloud and a number of other businesses. Um, yeah. You know, and um, his book is called the the hard thing about hard things, and it's I dip in and out of it all the time. You know, he is really honest about some of the challenges you face as a CEO of a startup or a growing business and how you need to deal with them and the things that you know, watch out for. So if any of the listeners ever you know, contemplate starting a business, go get his book. It's really good. Um, and um, on the other side, um, Martin Stuchter, who was a, a senior partner at McKinsey and is the founder of Systemic, which is a sort of um, sustainability consultancy and investment firm, also an investor in us, ha has written a book about how um, future economies should work in a more sustainable way. Um, and and that, is, that is also a very powerful book um, at, you know, it's written very much from an economist's perspective, but it's a very powerful book. Basically, its thesis is, doing business more sustainably is good business. Um, I was talking earlier about how Volvo was using sustainability as a driver of top-line growth. That is a perfect example today of exactly that thesis. This isn't a cost pain, it's actually a cost to grow faster. Uh, and I think that that's, that's another very good book. Thank you. Well, I've immediately added those to my Christmas list, so that'll keep me busy over, <laughs> over the winter. Um, and then final question, if you were say in my position right now, a student looking at the world ahead and looking at all these challenges that we do have to face, what would, what would you do? Um, the, 
the temptation is to go, I'm going to create a startup, perhaps, certainly if you're feeling very entrepreneurial. If, if there was one bit of advice I'd give to anyone who's thinking of starting their own business is get a little bit more experience. Stanford did some research about the average age of a successful entrepreneur um, when they started the business that was a success. And it's, a, I think it's 46, which sounds impossibly far away from most folks in, in your position at the moment. Um, but actually that experience that you develop in your career, wherever you develop it, will stand you in good stead and you're more likely to succeed as a result. That's not to say you don't learn a lot from mistakes. So I'm not encouraging anybody not to be entrepreneurial, but you know, go, go, go in with your eyes open. Yeah. Um, I think that for the next 10 years, sustainability technology in its many forms from hardware tech through to you know, carbon abatement, all the way through to the sorts of things that we do, is going to be a really hot space. Um, it is the defining challenge of our lifetimes to find a way to materially reduce emissions um, and perhaps to absorb carbon out of the atmosphere. And uh, if, if I were a student now, I wouldn't think twice about trying to work in a sustainability technology business. Your challenge is finding one that's likely to succeed. <laughs> yeah. And that's where you've got to think like an investor and weigh up, do your due diligence, weigh up your options. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and when I when I talk to, to candidates, you know, that, that are potentially interested in coming to uh, coming to circular, a few ask me those questions about the sustainability of the business. I don't mean sustainability, environmental sustainability, but you know, questions. I was asked a question recently by someone who said, um, how how can you be confident that you will achieve long term sustainable competitive advantage in the business that you're running? That's a brilliant question. So if anyone's listening and you want to ask an entrepreneur a difficult question, that's a good one. What was your answer? Um, my answer was that um, you know, the decarbonization of supply chains is essential to net zero. Um, we're currently a leader in one of the most polluting spaces that are essential to the energy transition, batteries. Our challenge is to maintain that leadership position. And to do that, we need to be able to innovate faster than competitors. That's probably a great soundbite to, to finish on. So, yeah, a great soundbite to finish on. And I would like to thank you for coming on the podcast. I've genuinely great pleasure, Jamie. Good questions. Yeah, thank you very much. So that was Doug Johnson Prinskin, founder and CEO of Circular. I really enjoyed that conversation. I yeah, learned a lot about the problem that they're trying to solve, the technology that they're using to try and do that. And I think it's a, a, a fascinating space in the energy transition. As I said in the call, I'm, I'm really interested in the kind of hidden side of the energy transition and companies like Circular are shining a light on that, which I think is, is really awesome. I also found it very interesting and very encouraging that supply chain transparency pressure is actually having an impact on, the access, on access to capital and the cost of capital for, for firms. And that that is happening now. That's really encouraging. The example of the construction company um, that wanted to undertake a solar project and their bank told them, okay, cool, but prove to us that there's no Uyghur slave labor in your supply chain is a really tangible example of that. And that supply chain transparency pressure for a solar project, right? That's not even for a coal project or for a project in another traditionally polluting industry. So I found that very encouraging. I was also fascinated by the, the complexity of supply chains. We all know that global supply chains are complex, but the example that Doug gave of the embodied carbon in a battery varying by a factor of four month to month, just depending on where certain materials were sourced from in that complex network of supply chains, really brought this to light. And I guess it highlighted, again, the, the need for real-time dynamic data and insight, which is what circular are providing. 
So that is the end of this episode. As always, please keep sending your feedback to our email address. We do love hearing from you. Next week, I will be hosting again and I will have a special co-host with me. I won't reveal who that is just yet. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. But I can tell you that we'll be speaking to AP Ventures, a hydrogen-focused venture capital firm. I think that'll be a very interesting conversation. So I hope that you tune in next week and join me on the Green Minds podcast.